This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to Brown's Film Breakdown. I'm your host, Jake Burns, writer at the OBR, writer for Cleveland.com. Coming at you guys last week of January here on what has been a big news week and a big performance week over the, uh, the 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 prior week with the Senior Bowl and the article by Seth Wickersham, which gave uh, to light what were a lot of rumors about operations within the Browns headquarters in Berea. And uh, it just, it was a lot to take in. I mean, a lot of people have asked me for a reaction to it. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily have a reaction to it anymore. Really, it covered a lot of things that we presumed were going on between the uh, the banner, Ray Farmer, Sashi Brown, a lot of those names that have sort of flushed out in the past, there has been a reason why those names have flushed out, and it is linked to the uh, name Jimmy Haslam, and he's obviously the owner of the franchise and the kingpin in terms of how everything operates within this franchise, so it's going to be interesting to see how the John Dorsey era shakes out. I did uh, have the reaction that it does seem like John Dorsey has a firm grasp on what is going on within this franchise now, and things are moving in a direction that he is comfortable with. Look, I don't think John Dorsey's perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but he has done some really good things here for the Browns, and there's uh, what has really been just over a year of time in the franchise, and I think that if you can take the uh, day-to-day operations as, as much as possible out of Jimmy Haslam's hands and put him in somebody like John Dorsey's hands, who at least has experience doing this, has experience running a a winning football franchise, you got to feel better about that than what is the alternative, which the alternative is obviously going to be uh, Jimmy Haslam undermining folks, pulling people aside, setting and plotting people against each other. So I left with one overwhelming feeling of positivity that there is no multiple levels of reporting to Jimmy Haslam anymore. It is Freddie Kitchens is reporting to John Dorsey. Those two are working in unison for the first time when in what feels like forever where we have a head coach and a GM working in unison, and that leads to a pipeline to Jimmy Haslam. So the hierarchy seems to finally be there. The hope is that Haslam can stop meddling in every way possible, and when he stops meddling in the day-to-day operations and allows those people that he has placed trust into to uh, work on the franchise and operate the franchise, you have a better chance at overall success. So the genuine hope out of all of that is, yes, there was a lot of crazy stuff in there, a lot of failed names, a lot of uh, pieces of information that we maybe even knew uh, in the public, but you know, at least for the most part didn't accept as fact until now through this article. That that stuff is in the past. That stuff is no more. And I think that the best thing that everybody can do in this situation is look forward. It doesn't take a genius to understand that Jimmy Haslam hasn't been able to run a franchise successfully since buying this this uh, Cleveland Browns franchise. So, uh, you know, as much as he can learn from his mistakes, I think you, the, the the big feeling that that Wickersham had about 
feeling bored in this situation at the press conference, that's okay to me. He shouldn't be up in the stage. He shouldn't be up in the limelight when they hire somebody. This is John Dorsey's hire. John Dorsey's the guy you trust to do this, run this whole thing. Take faith in John Dorsey. Step back. Let the people who know how to do this do it. So that part of it left me feeling pretty uh, pretty good about things. If you're looking for more information on all of that, if you're looking for more um, maybe inside info from the author, uh, Doug Maurice did a great job on his Takes by the Lake podcast. He hosted Wickersham. So if you would like to, to find some more information on that, you can do so on his on his Takes by the Lake podcast. That's can, can be found on iTunes or any multitude of the podcast sources that you get your, your uh, podcast from. So, uh, you know, like I said, guys, it's in the past now. I don't really want to talk about it all too much more. The good thing is we can uh, look forward to what is positive uh, out of last week, which is the Senior Bowl. But before we get to the Senior Bowl later this week, I'm going to have some good guests on to discuss that and uh, sort of those under-the-radar prospects the Browns might be targeting in the draft. I want to bring on uh, somebody analytics-driven because I think a big part of the article uh, that Wickersham wrote there was the role, um, you know, whether it's we've heard different sources, Charles Robinson saying Paul DePodesta is more involved than we think he is, and then you have the article this past week, like I said, where um, analytics was sort of downplayed. So um, the good thing is we can we can try to seek a balance in that, and I want to bring somebody on who's driven in that department and have a good conversation about where analytics uh, could be seen in the past and where they can be where they can be seen in the future. But before we get there, guys, I want to talk to you again. Uh, you've heard me talk about them in the past. I'm going to talk about them again. That's the folks over at MyPillow. I just can't stop talking about the difference MyPillow has made. You know, when we brought on MyPillow as a sponsor, they did a great job of sending us a sample pillow, and it has genuinely changed my sleep over the past three weeks. Um, and, and I can't say enough about personal experience when you trust somebody uh, as, as an ad sponsor for, for what you're doing. And I, I believe in what my pillow is doing so go to mypillow.com guys get this four pack special that they have going on all you got to enter is the promo code cozy which is c-o-z-y you'll get two premium my pillows and two go anywhere pillows okay so again like i said there's nothing better than that you know a full night of restorative sleep and that's what you're going to get at mypillow.com so click on the four pack special there at mypillow.com use that promo code cozy get two premium my pillows and two go anywhere pillows and then uh, if you guys can't, go to MyPillow.com. There's always 800-966-1472. That's going to get you guys the online and the uh, telephone number if you'd like to reach out that way. And remember, that promo code COZY can be used for any offer at MyPillow.com. So, again, that is promo code COZY. All right, guys, now off to our guest. All right, guys, excited to welcome in Kevin Cole. You can find Kevin at Kevin underscore Cole. On Twitter, I would imagine most of you have. He has uh, what I consider to be some of the best analytical input uh, you can find. Uh, he works as the director of data and analytics at Roto Grinders, which is obviously a very well respected uh, analytics site. I would uh, encourage you guys to follow him if you are not already. Kevin, how you doing tonight, buddy? Dude, I'm doing good, Jake. And it's great to be on here. And I remember I've, I've been on uh, uh, maybe one other Browns-related kind of type of podcast. I have to say, Browns content is going to is going to have a big year, I think, in uh, in 2019. So congratulations for being in the right space. <laughs> That's what I, I I I've talked to plenty of people because I first started doing it in 2017, and then I I broke. So I did those Monday recaps I do, and I thought to myself at the end of the year, like, what the hell am I doing? Why am I doing this? This is just a, this is the biggest waste of time ever. We're 0 16. Never gonna matter. But no, they've uh, 
they've turned it around quickly. So I am I am thankful that the uh, at least people know about the Browns in a positive light, and they can be like, oh, this guy seems to do okay. So yeah, that that helps. Um, but yeah, Kevin, I mean, how did you uh, how did you did have you studied the Browns for a long time? Like, what brought you to um, you know at least watching the Browns or giving a crap about what they're doing? Yeah, I mean, as as you mentioned, you know, I'm the director of data data and analytics. I've been doing analytical football analysis for about the last five years. I did some finance work before that, but so I, so I've been something I've been interested in, and obviously it's it's been tinkering. Teams have been tinkering with it for a while, but when Sashi Brown took over, and I know you know that's a, that's a name that a lot, a lot of opinions come out come out there, but then and then specifically when he took over, and then lending a lot of credibility to what he was doing when he brought in Paul D. Podesta. Uh, you know, as most people know, obviously he has the the fame as being one of the principal characters in in the Moneyball book and then movie and everything else. It lent a lot of credibility to what they were doing. So I, you know, I wasn't sure how they were going to approach things, and I wasn't going to uh, assume that everything they were doing was correct. But I wanted to pay special attention to what they're doing. And then as you start to follow what any team is doing, you start to become more familiar with everything that's going on about them, and you start to you know, really be interested in what they're going to do next. And that's that's kind of the, the space that I'm in now. So even though Sashi's no longer there, uh, Deep Podesta is there, but we don't know what sort of influence he has. I'm still very interested just because I've been watching what essentially has been uh, a gutting and now rebirth of this franchise since uh, 2016. Did it shock you that Deep Podesta jumped into football at the time? It did not, only because I knew from his background that he, I mean, he played football in mm-hmm. college. Uh, so I knew that he had that sort of background. And I've also seen that I think this is something specifically this type of analysis, which really translates well from different type of sports. I mean, I know that uh, I don't know about D Podesta uh, in particular, but I know that other um, practitioners of this type of analysis quite often look to other sports to see what they're doing because quite because you can kind of translate a lot from from sport to sport. So it didn't surprise me that much, especially because. Uh, football seemed more ripe for this if um, if really an owner is willing to, to 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 take to take a chance on this. And, you know, I don't know if Haslam's were predisposed to do something like this or whether they've been beaten into submission to do something like this. But it, it ended up happening. Yeah, I'm not I'm not entirely sure that way either. And the article last week made it. I mean, I don't think it cleared any of the waters. I actually think it made it more murky than it was than it was before. And that leads me uh, into really what I wanted to dive into as the first question which is, I think Charles Robinson, in the midst of the coaching search and rumblings and all that as the year started to wind down, mentioned that Paul D. Podesta has way more influence than we're being led to believe. And then all of a sudden, last week, the Seth Wickersham article that came out, you know, there's a couple of quotes in there from John Dorsey about not needing these nerds or easing up on them a little, whatever. Here's what I want to ask you as somebody who studies this stuff. Do you think that there is prevalent as Charles Robinson made them sound, or do you think they're just sort of a supplement and we'll put a green dot by a player on the draft guide if we think he fits the profile type of thing? Yeah, it's tough to say. I think that when it comes to personnel decisions, I have a feeling that this is, you know, this is Dorsey's wheelhouse, right? And he's carved out enough um, just based upon his reputation and based upon the early success that he's had, he's probably carved out enough room there where he is really, you know, the the quote unquote decider on these on these sorts of decisions. So I could see analytics playing a role only in confirmation of maybe what he would have done in other places. 
Um, but I, I think what you've seen throughout the franchise, I mean, it, it's very difficult to get a window into those sorts of decisions. But some things that are easier to see is I've done some analysis on on fourth down decision making, for instance, and whether or not teams are going for it more often than they would be. Um, not just generally, but also if you count for down and distance and and where they are in the field and things like that. And the Browns have come out as being, you know, the number one team the last two years doing something like that. And they don't have wow. a particularly strong offense. Um, so you wouldn't think they'd be a team going fourth down a lot, but they have been. So I, I think things like that are coming through. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it's it's going to depend. Uh, but ultimately, there is always someone making the decision. And with Dorsey there, you know, I don't think he's going to go too far away from where what his decision would have been um, if it weren't for uh, it, it just because of something that Dee Podesta may say. I mean, the only the only way this may came, come into play is if someone like Haslam comes in and, and overrides and somehow Dee Podesta is able to to get in his ear at the very end, I assume. Yeah, I think that's probably a big misconception. I'm glad you pointed out the fourth down stuff is that when people think analytics, they think it's only player selection. For some reason, I feel like most of the people I have banter with or who through Twitter or whatever think that analytics only drive drafts. And I think that that couldn't be further from the truth. I think that they drive film study. And I think that they drive, like you said, situational football and they drive two point conversions and different things like that. And probably more heavily involved in free agency than anything, because at that point you're really projecting at the age and uh, skill set and performance uh, on tape and all that. So I do think that they have to, I, I think that everybody has to be using them to an extent, but I think the common misconception is that it's only driven in the draft and that, that I just think is really wrong. I mean, have you noticed any of that? I just feel like when people talk about it, I mean, maybe those are novice people that I associate with. Cause I admitted to Kevin before I, I don't, you know, having come into football NFL study, little little later than most people that have spent a good amount of time on Twitter. I just didn't pay attention to numbers. Yeah, and then recently I was paying attention to as best I could as somebody who has an English degree and is trying to study deep dive analytical stuff on the NFL, uh, the big data bull stuff that's gone on. And it just seems to be so much more prevalent than it used to be. And like I said, I don't think people understand that it is impacting so many other parts of the game than just player selection. At least this is what I've noticed or when I talk to, to, to people who don't closely follow football is that they just think it's the draft. Do you ever get that vibe from people? Oh, I definitely do. In fact, I mentioned that after the Wickersham article came out um, because there was such a focus on it. I mean, this, this sounds strange, but okay. So, so, so the draft is probably the most important thing for a franchise as far as whether you hit your draft picks or you don't hit your draft picks is going to determine more than anything else um, how successful you are. At the same time, what, what even, you know, quote-unquote analytics can tell you is that it's really, really difficult and there's a lot of luck involved in it and you can't, you can't formula your way to picking the correct player or maybe not picking the correct player. So, I mean, all you're really going to do in that regard is try to tilt your odds slightly. But I think in other areas, if you think about other sports, whether it's, uh, you know, what they've done in baseball where they, they've realized, you know what, um, giving up outs through sacrifice bunts and things like that doesn't work. Um, you, you need to hit home runs. You need to do things like that. You need more strikeouts. Maybe you don't want pitchers going the entire time. And then in basketball, you know, taking more three-pointers, uh, do, doing things like that. Most of the, the really the, the revolutionary stuff has happened in in-game play. And I feel like that is really where 
not only can you have a, a bigger impact, but the research that's been done where you, where you show, hey, you know, we should be throwing the ball more on, on early down, something like that is a, very, is a very big thing and probably analogous to taking more three-pointers in basketball. Like that is very clear. Uh, there's a very clear advantage there. So I feel like that is the area that probably should be concentrated a little bit more is where you can get clear wins as opposed to, you know, we feel like this player may be a little bit better than that player, whereas th- that's just so difficult to get the heads around. I, I think maybe the, the quote-unquote analytics should be should be focused a lot more in that area, but I think it's easier to discount what they're saying in the area of, of personnel and evaluation in, in, in there because that's easier to say, hey, you just don't understand what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's something that if, if people had a, a larger understanding of how to use it and, and apply it practically to their thought process, I think so many less people would be dismissive of the word. It's just a word that gets thrown around, and, and people tie it for the wrong reasons, the wrong connotations, and um, I, I – I, I, that's why I hated the article last week because I just people are are so confused as to what analytics means and how it's applied that they just think that it's all about one individual thing and it it turns into confirmation bias and all of that stuff. So it probably will keep dividing media and fans for 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 the foreseeable future. But uh, you know whatever it's, it's to the point now. What are we going to do about it? You just hope your team's out in front of it and doing it the right way. And I feel okay about that with the Browns. So. I want to tie a little bit of the analytic conversation into into Mayfield. Um, obviously, a heck of a rookie season. Don't need to rehash the awards and all of those things and, and the records. But what does, I guess, with predictive measures for what a year two would look like for a quarterback like Mayfield who performed in year one, is the sample size is kind of small, right? Like Russell Wilson was sort of the barometer or... Uh, maybe Dak Prescott with his rookie year. Uh, Mayfield was in the upper echelon as far as we've ever seen from rookies. So what do you think um, a year two looks like for Mayfield, as best you can predict it? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I think another reason that we don't necessarily, a lot of people don't like analytics as much is because it really, it, the, the true answer is, well, we don't really know, but we're going to try to figure out how little we know, essentially, mm-hmm. about about what what may happen. So we're not going to have the most confident opinions about things. But when it comes to, to Baker Mayfield, I think it's probably as good as you can feel about a quarterback going into his second year. I mean, typically, what you, how you want to think about a quarterback is you have you know information that you knew about them and an assumption for how they would do going into their rookie season and that's based upon kind of everything that's gone into their life up until that point including being drafted as the number one pick and being this ultra prolific uh passer in college and then you combine that with what he's shown in the nfl and i don't think there's anything you can really point to to say that production was fraudulent in some sort of way you could say no well no he has a much stronger arm probably than what we thought he had he's maybe even more accurate than what than what we thought he was um because we just didn't know whether the receivers were really getting open or not and he's he's proving it on this stage so i think you can be fairly confident now the question is most quarterbacks from year one to year two that's the leap year that's the year that they kind of they become much more who they will be the rest of their career but typically they're they're pretty bad their first year and they're mm-hmm. worse than what what Baker Mayfield was so 
he may not have as big of a second year leap as we've seen for other other guys. But, you know, you had many quarterbacks recently. If you're talking about guys who took second year leaps, whether it's Carson Wentz and then in particular Jared Goff. I mean, they were they were bad pr- pretty much their first. I mean, well, Goff was really bad. Yeah. Uh, Wentz, Wentz was kind of not great, but but showed some 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 things. So I, I feel like Mayfield, you're really hoping he's going to become that guy because you have this great this great foundation and then what we saw which is not everything because we we don't know everything about him but what we did see confirmed what 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 we believed of that foundation so we should be positive about him going forward yeah i think that what i would like to see from mayfield and i tried to note this in a couple different places is that i thought with when when you can have the second highest amount of tight window throws um, according to Pro Football Focus, which is a big stat to me, the ability to fit balls into tight windows, which is the, one of the more challenging parts of playing the quarterback position in the NFL. And he only had 15 throws that were deemed turnover worthy. Um, I feel okay. Here's what I think. The status quo with him would have been like over, what, 16 games, maybe 31, 32 touchdowns, uh, 15 interceptions, 16 interceptions, a little over 4,000 yards, right? Um, yeah. In, in 64-ish completion percentage, that's good. Like, that's good enough in this league. And if he sits at those numbers next year, I would feel good about it. The thing I'd like him to do is cut down turnovers. If he, I mean, if he's a 32, 33 touchdown quarterback a year with 10, 10 or less interceptions and, and throw in a couple fumbles that are just going to organically happen, that's elite quarterback play. Like, that's really, really good. And then you have those years where he could where he could bust out. You're hoping he gets to Mahomes' level. Obviously, that's what you want. You took him first. Um, but even if the status quo stays sort of the same, right, you're going to um, – that's, I mean, I, that's just where I feel. I feel like you're going to get a really good quarterback for a long time. So that's a lot of things to feel positive about. He had, like I said, he had 15 turnover-worthy throws, 14 of which were intercepted. That's a little bit unlucky. So you would hope that that year-to-year uh, variable uh, can kind of go down. And and that's my my thought process is if he's a 32 touchdown, 4,000 plus yards, 10 interception a year guy, that's elite quarterback play. Browns can win Super Bowls that way. And then maybe you know he finds the savant level that uh, some of the better players at the position in the game have found and he can turn in a 40 45 touchdown a year uh sort of clip and that the the good part is they have an aggressive play caller in kitchens who did a nice job like you you mentioned kevin and early down passing um one of the better ones in the league from week nine on i believe right at least at least moderately yeah yeah and then you mix in todd monken's passionate about driving the football downfield as the buccaneers were the only team with two quarterbacks who threw the ball over 50 percent of the time past the first down marker the only two in the league so you're going to mix two really aggressive play callers with an aggressive quarterback and you hope that they uh they can push into the 40 touchdown a year department which would be really cool to see so i'm with you the baseline is is uh is unique right it's unique because he's really good and um, you just sort of want him to continue to grow on it, but maybe like you said, that year two leap isn't going to be as crazy as people think, but even if he doesn't take a crazy year two leap, just a leap in general gets him to 35 touchdowns. He cuts down on interceptions and that's like a top five quarterback. So yeah, man, uh, I think so. I mean, what you talked about with some of those numbers with the big time throws, and I think we all saw it with our eyes who watch, who watch the games. I mean, he's doing the things that separate quarterbacks who can who can win you games versus quarterbacks who can not lose you games essentially if anything the, the problems that he had was probably not you know probably not checking down sometimes yeah. where, he should, where he should have been checking yeah. down and doing things like that so I think that's encouraging and the hope is that that sort of stuff comes around um, I, I don't think he, you know, you know, someone like Jameis Winston was actually pretty good as a rookie, uh, but he just never, he's never come around on, on not making those mistakes. But I, I don't feel like 
but Baker Mayfield didn't show himself to hasn't shown himself to be that to be that type of quarterback in college. Whereas James James Winston in his final college year, he was kind of a mess also. Yeah. Yep, so cool. so I, I think I think there, there's more encouraging stuff with, with Baker that he's just trying to really do all he can all the time and dialing it back a little bit hopefully won't be an issue. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. I thought he did a better job of it when, when Freddie came on uh, using his running backs. Nick Chubb saw an uptick there too. So yeah, he's got to find that balance. The best in the league find that balance. So uh, the hope is that he can do the same and, and we've seen some encouraging signs of that so we'll close with this uh kevin i think this is a fun question for almost everybody i bring on because everybody it seems now has a at least a general interest of the browns roster and who they are and how they can get better which is so different from a year ago because there were so so many people who didn't care but i'm fascinated with your answer as i am with everybody else they 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 won seven games the goal for them in year two which is the start of what they consider uh, as crazy as it sounds to use in the same sentence this is the browns super bowl window starting um to get to 10 wins, where do they need to improve? Who should they draft? That that sort of a big ballpark question there for you. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting. I think the the draft is always a place where you'd like to – I mean, once the quarterback, of course, is, is taken care of, you want to address needs that maybe you can't really find in, the, in, in free agency, um, in particular for a team like the Browns that have – as close to unlimited free agent uh, cap space as as you can have in the NFL. Um, I mean, it depends. Obviously, you don't want to just be reaching for something like that. But I think, in particular, tackle, offensive tackles, you don't see many on the market that are really outstanding. And when you do, when when, when some teams like are hitting on a, a Whitworth or someone like that, you know, it's someone who's who's kind of had a revival and well, well past their prime. And often you see teams paying a lot of money for mediocre play in that sort of position. So I, so I think the Browns did a good job paying good money for top play in the interior line. Um, but when we're talking about on the outside, they may need to look to to address that in the draft. So I think that's an inter- interesting, interesting place to go. Um, clearly, they need more depth defensively uh, on the line and probably in the uh, for just some defensive backs also. So that would be a place to, to look in the draft. But I feel like that's probably even more of a place where you can – you can spend a lot of money and and get that type of depth because it's just you know those positions aren't like um, an offensive lineman who, when not injured, literally plays every single snap. You know you can you can build depth there, and I think you've seen you've seen with with, with teams like the Patriots, they don't go for marquee talent very often. They really just build out depth talent. I feel like the Browns could really do something like that, but they're actually in a position where they can almost do both, which is get, get some depth and go after a couple of the marquee names of, with what they're doing. So I feel like they could spend, they could probably spend more more money on the defensive side of the ball. Now on the offensive side of the ball, outside of the tackle position, you know, I, I've seen you talk about this on Twitter and I've talked about it. You know, what do you do about the receivers? And I feel like that's a place where... Uh, teams are often compelled to surround their franchise quarterback with lots of weapons in hopes that it'll it'll support them. I mean, we saw with with Goff, with Wentz. You've seen it with guys like even Ryan Tannehill. You know that they've brought in player after player at that sort of position. Um, you know, I, I I don't mind that, but I just don't want to spend too much, especially in light of the fact that they've already spent so much on someone like like Jarvis Landry and the fact that. Baker Mayfield is, you know, making Richard Higgins and and Perryman look like look like stud wide receivers. So th- maybe that's a place that I would be a little more conservative than what some others are thinking going into this offseason. 
Yeah, it's going to be fascinating for them. It's obviously an offensive league, and people wanted them to address tackle and wide receiver, and I would understand it. Um, but I do think that they have to figure out some things up front defensively. I, I don't know. There's a lot of data out there that's telling you that even though your defense might not be good, it is good enough as long as it is good enough to get by and your offense is that explosive, um, you know, sort of a la the, the, the Chiefs, you can, you can at least get to that point where you're uh, in a chance to, to go to a Super Bowl. But the Rams have that perfect balance, right? They have the perfect balance of offensive explosion and a defense that can at least slow teams down and has a dominant front. So the Browns have to find whatever that formula is. I think this offseason will tell us a lot about what that formula is. But uh, until that time, we will uh, – We'll probably have Kevin back on. I'd love to get him back on early in the season so we can sort of talk year two so far for Mayfield. So we will have Kevin back again. You guys find him, uh, like I said, at Kevin under, or sorry at Cole underscore Kev, uh, and that's C O L E underscore K E V. Find him on Twitter. Follow him. You're smarter for it. Okay, guys. Kevin, thanks for joining me, man. Hey, it was great. Thanks, Jake. Yep, absolutely. All right, guys. Per the usual, at the end of these, I always tell you it is important to uh, what we do here at Browns Film Breakdown. If you can, log into iTunes. Give us a uh, subscribe. Give us a like. Give us a, a share. All of those good things, those keep us driving. And we really appreciate all the support you guys give us. And uh, we'll come back later this week with some senior bull coverage. And until then, go Browns. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.